Welcome uh, to the Richard and Sue Ann Masson Policy Center here at the Cato Institute. My name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute. I'm glad to see so many of you picked up our old Regulation Magazine article on secondhand smoke, but put it away now because that's not the text for today. It's a supplemental text. Um, you will also have noticed that copies of the book that we're discussing today are out there available for sale. Uh, if you're interested, you better grab it because it's a book published in England. It may not be easy to get in a bookstore here. I grew up in a house full of smokers in a tobacco town in the smokingest state in the country, which is actually not North Carolina, it's Kentucky. And all of that experience turned me into a militant anti-smoker. I can't stand a whiff of smoke anywhere in the vicinity. I will move from an outdoor table if I smell a whiff of smoke. And don't ask me for an ashtray if you're visiting. There are no ashtrays in my house. But anything can be taken too far. And I think anti-tobacco sentiment, anti-smoking sentiment, um, the jihad against smoking has been taken too far. Uh, smokers these days tend to be less affluent, less educated, and thus less politically influential, and so they're on the run. They have been driven out of offices, out of restaurants, even out of bars. And of course, as a libertarian, my view was always, I'm glad there are bars that don't allow smoking, but I don't see why there shouldn't be some bars that do allow smoking. Let individual... Uh, Bar owners make those decisions. Now the anti-tobacconists have followed the smokers right up to the doors of their homes and are knocking and complaining about smoking in their homes. Uh, so you must assume that the science about smoking and especially secondhand smoke is very solid. But if you read Unlucky Strike, you might change your mind about that view. The author of Unlucky Strike John Stadden is a scientist of great distinction. He has a PhD in psychology from Harvard. He has taught at Duke for more than 40 years. He is now the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Professor of Biology. He's the author or editor of more than a dozen books. He's written more than 100 papers in refereed journals. And now that he's an emeritus professor, he can tell you what he really thinks. Uh, which he does in this book with some biting wit along the way. Uh, when I was reading the book, I liked this point. He's writing about a 709-page Surgeon General's report on secondhand smoke, and he says the number of pages in these reports is a tip-off to the rickety case they attempt to bolster. doesn't take 709 pages to prove real scientific connections. However, he also walks the reader through some very incisive critiques of science and pseudoscience surrounding smoking, not to mention offering a few original illustrations by the great artist David Hockney along the way as you thumb through the book. So please welcome the author of Unlucky Strike, Private Health, and the Science, Law, and Politics of Smoking, Professor John Stadden. Thank you very much, David, for that very kind introduction. Now, I just start out here. Can you all hear OK? I just start out here with an example of some smokers who could perhaps have made it in the rough world 
uh, if only they hadn't smoked. Uh, and here's another one. This is from an old British movie some of you may have seen years ago. I'm all right, Jack. And here you see the, um, the, the toffee-nosed uh, business person offering the union organizer, Peter Sellers, cigarettes as a mark of politeness. So the point is that smoking habits have changed enormously, enormously over the last 60 or 50 or 60 years. Um, this is just to uh, remind you that I'm at Duke University. This is James Butt Duke. Uh, you can see with his cigar. I know the battle will be lost in all of this when they secretly in dead of night remove his cigar, but they haven't done, <laughs> they haven't done so yet. Uh, this, if you can read it, is also to remind us all that America was basically founded on tobacco. The, uh, the Jamestown colony survived only because somebody stole some tobacco seeds and they, found they could sell this stuff and it was a, a cash crop. Not so much anymore. All right, so what I want to do is sort of walk you through some of the uh, uh, so-called facts about smoking and let's see what the evidence actually is. All right, well, there are five of them that I, I also list in the book. It's lethal, it's injurious to non-smokers, passive smoke. It's unpleasant and unpopular, not much doubt about that. Costly to, to society and, of course, sinful. And let's look at these one by one. Well, it's very common. Um, they know they're killing themselves, says Michael Bloomberg, the source, if not of all wisdom, of all money in New York City. Um, and this is a very, very common statement. And here's an ex extract of stuff in recent reports on this. I'll just read it quickly. Smoking causes lung cancer, bronchitis, emphysema, heart disease, cancers in other organs, including the mouth, lip, throat, bladder, kidney, stomach, liver, and cervix. Those of you who don't have a cervix are at least free of that one. <laughs> Half, it says, of all smokers will die prematurely. Uh, ETS, that secondhand smoke, has been shown to cause lung cancer, ischemic heart disease, and probably to cause COPD, which is, you know, very bad. Asthma and stroke, it's stroke in adults. ETS is harmful to children, causing sudden infant death, pneumonia and bronchitis, asthma, respiratory symptoms, and middle ear disease, particularly the middle ear disease you need to worry about. Said the Tobacco Advisory Group of the Royal College of Physicians in July 2005. I mean, this is pretty horrible stuff, folks. Uh, and of course, we have these wonderful warnings on the packets. Here are some of the warnings on the packets. Those of you who can't read Gaelic, it's helpfully translated for you. And fume, tue, and so forth, smoking kills, so on and so forth. The one I particularly like is this one smoking may cause impotence. <laughs> Very scary for the undergraduate population, no doubt. Um, and interesting because the uh, baby boom generation, there are a lot of them, were actually spawned by the greatest generation, most of whom were smokers. And in any case, everybody knows you smoke afterwards. <laughs> OK, the proof that the public is really scared, there's no question about that, is that manufacturers are making strenuous efforts to produce a safe smoke. Here's a wonderful ad, a few years old now. Uh, E-cigarettes have taken off since then, but here's an ad for E-cigarettes, which are being thoroughly vilified as we speak. 
is an e and of course, if not an e-cigarette, at least a natural smoke. I've seen these ads in various magazines. I still have no idea what the difference is between a natural smoke and a regular smoke. But anyway, there it is. Natural American spirit, $20 in gift certificates. All right, so how dangerous is smoking? Do people realize the extent of life that might be lost because of smoking? Scientific estimates of that loss are in the range of six to eight years. This was in 2002, when a lot of people still smoked. However, the public's risk perception is greater. Uh, men believe it's 10 years, women that it's almost 15 years. The facts are closer to the six to eight at that time anyway. Compared to what? How, how risky is smoking compared to other things? Well, how about motorcycles? Uh, there are 46 times as many fatalities per mile for motorcycle riders as cars. It's probably very, very dangerous. Uh, it's hard to get a you know, uh, statistic on it, but my guess is it's probably at least as dangerous as cigarettes. Uh, smoking is, in fact, risky, not lethal. And here's, there was no collusion on this. I had this in here before I recognized that you could get copies of it here. But this is, uh, this is what was, has been circulated, that smoking is lethal. It is not lethal. It is risky. And the risk, you get various figures from 10 to 20% to 50% for the risk. Uh, and now, smoking is also supposed to be addictive. It's not addictive in a good way. Eating is, after all, addictive. But that's probably good. Otherwise, you wouldn't live. Uh, but it's probably not addictive for everybody. So here, I was always amused by this. Some of you may recognize this picture. It's all these tobacco, evil, I should say, evil tobacco company executives years ago, 1994, saying that tobacco or nicotine was not addictive. So were they mendacious, ill-advised, or just plain stupid? Well, possibly all three. But they should have turned the question around to the committee. This was, remember, several years ago. How many of you used to smoke? How many of these committee members used to smoke? My guess is perhaps half of them had quit, but they'd quit. So not addictive for them then. It's obviously not addictive for everybody. A lot of people do quit. But, and here's the key thing, smoking is injurious to non-smokers, passive smoke, isn't it? Isn't it really dangerous to non-smokers? Well, I don't know. Okay, so this is a little information. How lethal is it? The watershed event, I'm quoting from, uh, um, uh, uh, I think, a Cato publication, actually. The watershed event in the assault against secondhand smoke was EPS designation of environmental tobacco smoke as a Group A carcinogen. No longer was the concern pertaining to environmental tobacco smoke based on aesthetics and so forth. Um, careful review of the studies, this was uh, in 1993, of the lung cancer environmental smoke uh, linkage indicates, and I've highlighted this, none of the studies has ever demonstrated a relationship that passes the usual test of statistical significance. That was 1993, but I think that is still true. Um, here's another quote from that era. Uh, the public's the normal methodology selected the EPA did not demonstrate a statistically significant association between environmental tobacco smoke and lung cancer. And think about it. How would you prove that environmental tobacco smoke caused cancer? Nobody expects the effect to be either large or immediate. You can't put people in a room for 30 years with smoke and see if they're more likely to get cancer than people in a room without smoke. That would be what it would take to, to demonstrate a causal 
uh, relationship. You can't do those experiments. That's, or I would say, almost all the policy disagreements that we encounter, where the government says one thing and the group says another, they're all things where you can't do experiments, and tobacco is one of those. Um, okay, here's the best study. I think this is the best study about environmental tobacco smoke and tobacco-related mortality. Now, the, the effect these guys are looking at, this is a California study, the effect people are looking at is death, okay? Now, death is a good thing to study because there's no argument about it, okay? Either people are alive or dead. If they have conditions like asthma or bronchitis, you know, there are all sorts of arguments. Who really has it? Who doesn't have it? Is it chronic? Is it not? But I'm afraid about mortality, there is no argument. Okay, so this is how this study worked. There were 35,000 people in it. It was, again, all correlational. All the research on tobacco, almost without exception, is correlational. Just whenever you read in the press of a link between something, all it means is somebody has found a statistical association, not a cause. All right, so here's this study. Particular focuses on 35,000 never smokers who had a spouse in the study with known smoking habits. So you look at these never smokers, and the ones who have smoking spouses versus the ones who have non-smoking spouses, question is very, very simple. Do the ones with non-smoking spouses live longer than the ones with smoking spouses? That's it. And there are a lot of people in the study. That's good, 35,000. And what was the result? They here are the conclusions. The results do not support a causal relation between environmental tobacco smoke and tobacco-related mortality although they don't rule out a small effect. That's honest. Of course, it doesn't rule out a small effect. But there's no evidence from this very large study. This is in the British Medical Journal in 2003. Okay, so it's a relatively recent study. Um, now, it's interesting. This study elicited a lot of hostility, as you can imagine, from the medical community. The reference does appear in the citations for Chapter 7 of the 2006 uh, Surgeon General's 709-page report, but it's not discussed anywhere in the report. It's not discussed in the report at all. In the recent report, which is even more bloviating than the earlier one, uh, and was published only because it's the 50-year anniversary of the first report, uh, it doesn't appear at all in, the, in this report. So as one of the judges involved in the early tobacco litigation said, they're cherry-picking the data. Well, how about the effects on the unborn? That's certainly a hot-button issue. Everybody knows that pregnant women should not smoke, should they? Well, you won't be able to read all of this, but this is a very clever study that was done, I think, in England, uh, with pe people who had their children by IVF, if, intra, you know, uh, uh, external um, eggs implanted, all right? So the idea is you've got a woman who has an egg implanted from another woman, a fertilized egg, and she gives birth. Now, you can look at such women who smoke or don't, who don't smoke, and there's no genetic link then. There's no genetic link, okay? And you can see if the smoke, what effect the smoking has on the, on the newborn child. And what they found was an association with birth weight, but no association with behavioral problems, which is what in, inspired the study in the first place. In other words, the behavior is clearly inherited. The behave, behavioral problems of these kids is inherited. The, the lower birth weight is probably caused by the tobacco. It's a very nice study. However, there is no limit. This is my little heading. There is no limit to smoking alarmism. 
people think that third-hand smoke is dangerous. And here's a quote which I thought was pretty appalling from pediatrics. Not the hardest science, really, pediatrics. And here's a quote. What is known on this subject? There is no safe level of exposure to tobacco smoke. Oh, really? Third-hand smoke is residual tobacco smoke contamination of the smoke and clothes and so on that remains after the cigarette is extinguished. Children are uniquely susceptible to third-hand smoke. How on earth do they know? How on earth do they know they don't know? It's just an act of faith, you might say. No proof whatever offered for this claim. All right, so clearly smoking is not as dangerous to other people as, say, alcohol. People who drink too much kill people with their cars. That's really dangerous, no doubt about that. And indeed, many smokers have benefited mankind. I showed uh, at, right at the beginning some smokers. Some of them had benefited mankind, probably Winston Churchill, you know, uh, Roosevelt and so on. Others, not so much, Stalin. <laughs> but the roster of distinguished smokers is long, a lot longer than the list of distinguished alcoholics or respected pot smokers, rather a small list in each case. Here are some distinguished smokers. Let's see if I can remember who they all are. This, I think you all recognize this guy. This is a funny picture of uh, Sigmund Freud. This is a famous British geneticist called J.B.S. Haldane. And this is a famous ethologist with one of his geese, Conrad Lorenz, Nobel Prize winner. This is a British journalist called Malcolm Muggeridge. I have him up there just because I always find his writings quite witty and he knew my uncle. And this, <laughs> and this is, I think, Erwin Schrodinger, a wonderful uh, physicist. Uh, this is, of course, who's that? Anybody knows who this is? Bertram Russell, right? Um, who uh, is very much a fan of smoking, as you can see. And here are their ages at death. Uh, uh, I think only two of them died of smoking-related. I think uh, Freud died of throat cancer, not good, and probably smoking-related. But I think um, this was a relatively young demise. Haldane, I think, died of a heart attack, but I'm not sure about that. This lady, don't any of you recognize him? You ought to. She's a Washington figure. 82, Millicent Fenwick. Millicent Fenwick, who famously smoked a pipe. She gave up cigarettes in favor of a pipe. As you can see, they all live to fairly ripe old ages, but this is not a scientific survey, it's just for fun. But th and this is my personal favorite, because I've written about him a lot. He's a wonderful biologist, Charles Sherrington. This is his book he wrote, Integrative Action of the Nervous System, and he lived to 95, so he's got a fag here. Uh, and then if you prefer other kinds of social value, uh, this gentleman is, I think, as we speak, 70 years old. Uh, but is it tobacco? Huh? <laughs> okay. All right, what about rights? I mean, the Cato Institute's very interested in libertarianism and freedom for individuals and so on. Uh, here are some rights that we might talk about. The right of non-smokers not to be exposed to unpleasant but probably not dangerous tobacco smoke, an aesthetic right, fair enough. The right of a proprietor to permit smoking on his premises, the right to a smoke-free workplace or public space, the right of a smoker to smoke when he wants. These issues, I would argue, should be decided through the political process. They're mostly aesthetic, not health-related, and uh, they shouldn't be um, skewed, as they are, by misinformation about the health risks of smoking, 
which contributes to the desire of many smokers to quit, which weakens their resistance to encroachment. I mean, every smoker practically, certainly every cigarette smoker, it really wishes he or she could give up. It's a terrible habit, I know it's killing me, and so on and so on. So they, they're, they're willing victims of any kind of discrimination against smoking. They're perfectly happy to live with it because they know they shouldn't be doing it. They have, it's a guilty pleasure. Um, the main source of misinformation, I think, is the social costs of smoking, beyond the effects of uh, secondhand smoke. Surely there are health costs to smoking. There really are health costs to smoking, aren't there? And this is an old argument. Some of you may recognize this, those of you who study Nazi propaganda. Nicht er sie sie frisst in der Kettenraucher. This is the uh, chain smoker. He does not devour it, the cigarette devours him, and it costs the Third Reich, a lot of Volkswagens. Zwei Millionen Volkswagen. KDF Wagen. Very expensive. This was the, one of the German ads against smoking. Hitler, as you all know, was a rabid non-smoker, vegetarian, but he was a dog lover. He liked dogs. So not all bad, then. OK, so here are the costs of smoking. Economics of smoking cessation. Here's a, from the British Medical Journal. Smoking imposes a huge economic burden on society, currently up to 15% of total healthcare costs in developed countries. Smoking sensation can save years of life at a very low cost, and so forth. So, so smoking is costs all of us, even the non-smokers. Uh, it's all over the, uh, the world. In Puerto Rico, China, here's the Chinese, yeah, and Venezuela, the cost of smoking has been estimated at 3 to 4.3 to 0.4% of the gross domestic product. Who could disagree? I mean, smoking clearly is massively costly. And on that account alone, we should all uh, suppress it as much as we can. But who should disagree? Good science could disagree, actually. Here is the best study I have found of this issue. It's a Dutch study, which is actually on obesity. But they compare three groups, uh, fat people, Smokers and non-smokers, non-fat non non-smokers, what they call the healthy living cohort. And what do they find? Um, let's see, this is probably hard to read. Anyway, this is what it's all about. Um, the bottom line is they find smokers save society money. They save society money. I'll skip to the chase here. Here's... Here's the, you can see the smoking cohort here, healthy living cohort, and the obese cohort. And these are the lifetime health care costs in the little square here. 250, uh, I think it's in euros, but I think that makes too much of a difference. 250 for the obese cohort, 220 for the smoking, and 281 for the healthy living. In other words, the healthy living people cost a lot more in lifetime Healthcare costs. Well, how can that be? Well, it's something which is obviously going to come as a great shock to some of our regulators. Everybody dies, actually. Everybody dies. And it's very costly. Dying is very, very costly. The, uh, uh, the cost, the annual costs of healthcare just skyrocketed the last year of, uh, of life. I mean, it's very, very expensive. And that's what's going on here. That's what's going on. Oh, I, I had this little thing here because we can look at the years. Uh, see, the healthy living can expect 64 years of life at age 20. That's 84. 
and so forth. So you see the differences in the estimated lifespan of the, the fat people and the smoking people. But other estimates are different. Here's another one which is only 4.3 years difference between smokers and non-smokers. So a lot of argument about the life expectancy. But clearly, smokers, on average, have a lower life expectancy. OK. And this is just a quote. Uh, the bottom line is, uh, this, uh, the high medical costs of smoking-related diseases are more than offset by the lower survival of smokers. This is a harsh judgment. Seems very callous. But in fact, the cost, the healthcare costs of smoking were used as one of the arguments in the uh, infamous tobacco master settlement agreement. So it's fair enough that the smokers say, well, we actually don't cost you more. But they were not allowed to in the original court case. I mean, the, the judge blocked testimony on lifetime costs, which is, to me, quite incredible. But anyway, because that argument had been used against the smokers. Uh, okay, so this is the conclusion of the Bale study. In this study, we have shown that although obese people induce high medical costs during their lives, their lifetime healthcare costs are lower than those of healthy living people, but higher than those of smokers. The underlying mechanism, and this is important, that there is a substitution of inexpensive lethal diseases towards less lethal and therefore more costly diseases. One could argue, I was thinking about this today, that you know, there's a lot of money spent on heart, disease research, on cancer research, on Alzheimer's, mental health research, stroke, and so on. But in fact, we ought to be thinking about the cost to the individual and to the society, not of dying, but of dying in different ways. And it is, of course, much better to die of a heart attack than of 20 years of dementia. So we ought to be spending more on those diseases and less on the ones that kill people quickly. Because face it, folks, we're all going to die. OK. Um, well, here's another example, which is rather interesting. Um, you probably can't read that. This is a study of uh, malaria eradication in Colombia. They have two kinds of malaria. And one of them is just, just debilitating. It doesn't kill people. It just weakens them. There are a lot of diseases like this, Bilharzia in Africa and so on. Uh, it's a debilitating disease, not a lethal one. There's another one where people die with high frequency very quickly. Well, what they found was um, eliminating the rapid killer had no uh, economic gain to the country. But eliminating the other one did. So eliminating the one where... Uh, it, people drag out and don't actually die. It's much more cost-saving for the country. So this is a general fact. It's not just to do with smoking. OK, so what should the government do? My point here at this point is that there's no utilitarian, no common good argument against smoking. So what remains? Aesthetic and moral objections. And as we'll see in just the last part of this, very corrupt incentives for attacking smokers. Smoking is risky. Should the government always act to minimize risk? Well, there are a lot of other things that are risky. That's the point. Here are some other activities that are lightly regulated or not regulated at all by the government. Drinking alcohol, motorcycling, skydiving, rock climbing, hang gliding, swimming and diving, skiing and luge, promiscuous and unprotected sex. These are all not only risky, but also costly because the people die when they have young families and so on, and it's a ver they're very costly. 
Most of these do have a social cost. Um, and indeed, the government often seeks to mitigate the ill effects of these activities. For example, HIV has been proclaimed by all, all sorts of official bodies as basically a behavioral problem. It's a behavioral ailment, a drug, activity, promiscuous sex, and so on. It's a behavioral problem. So uh, what does the government do? It spends billions on STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. What does it spend making cigarettes safer? Uh, something, as the Brits would say, not unadjacent to zero, right? Not unadjacent to zero on making cigarettes safer. A lot of people like it, like a lot of people like all these other activities, but uh, there's zero effort to make the, the tobacco companies did for a while try and do it, but then their lawyers realized that that seemed to be an admission that cigarettes are dangerous. No, you can't do that, so you have to stop it. Why pick on smoking and why offer abstinence as the only cure? That's in effect what's being offered. Well, smoking is immoral. I'm just skip through some of these. Smoking is a reprehensible habit, says this guy in a scientific article. He's got no business making moral judgments in a scientific article, but that's what he says. Um, now, this is getting a little long. I don't know if I can, well, maybe I can keep going a little bit more. Why is smoking condemned? There are four more possibilities. Um, smoking clearly reduces life expectancy and longevity is an absolute good. It's nasty and unpleasant for others. That's the aesthetic argument. It's just a taboo, like being against gays or eating pork or marrying an infidel, always all bad things. Uh, but number four, I think, is the key one. It enables the government to exploit smokers. Well, first of all, is longer life always better? And sh who should decide? Who should decide? Well, here's an old medical source, Jonathan Swift, Gulliver's Travels, about the Strobrooks. The Strobrooks live forever. Okay, and Gulliver was very envious until he found they lived not as if they were 20, but as if they were 90. So this was not so good. The question, uh, therefore, was not whether a man would choose to be always in the prime of youth, attended with prosperity and health, but how he would pass a perpetual life under all the usual disadvantages which old age brings along with it. Old age isn't always a bowl of cherries. A longer life may be a more painful life. The years saved by not smoking, say from 77 to 84, are not, for most people, their very best years. So if our aim is not the maximization of life, but the maximization of happiness, maybe a short but pleasurable life is preferable to a longer but less happy one. This is certainly David Hockney's position. Is longevity always good? It's now a scientific issue. Uh, evolutionists tell us that for every species, there is an optimal lifespan. This is certainly true. There's a whole area of biology called life, life history strategies, which is to do with the optimal lifespan. You know, long lifespan, good for tortoises, not so good for mayflies. The mayfly may prefer to live until September, but natural selection finds a shorter life leads to more mayflies. Okay? Same is true for human populations. Undoubtedly, the point is the optimal lifespan is not infinite. It's not infinite. So there's nothing in science that says a longer life is always better. Who should decide? Okay. Well, I'll just say out loud that the owner of the life should surely decide. Uh, finally, it's bad. Smoking is bad because it's nasty to others. Agreed, but ways can certainly be found to produce non-smoking areas. 
people like the uh, extremely uh, bigoted uh, colleague of mine, David Bowes, who doesn't like smoking. I mean, they could be accommodated. There's no question about it. But do we have the right to so abridge the rights of smokers and restaurateurs that they cannot have a smoking restaurant or a smoking bar or whatever if they want it? Our current answer, the answer is yes, and the government should do something about it, except for all those other risky and or immoral practices that are not stigmatized the way smoking is. Okay, so what's so special about smoking? This is my last section. If smoking is evil, if it's really bad for you, then it should be suppressed by any means possible. So a swinging tax rate and the tobacco master settlement, which I'll tell you a little bit about, are okay. Do you all know about the Tobacco Master Settlement? Probably a few of you do, yeah? If smoking is bad, why not tax it? After all, that's a general policy. If you've got a bad thing, you should tax it. Uh, of course, it does have a bit of a problem because then your tax revenues are dependent on people's bad habits, which is not so good. Well, never mind, as this lady used to say, never mind. Should state finances really depend on people doing something which is bad for them? Well, never mind. What about the Tobacco Master Settlement? This is, uh, here's a little history about the Tobacco Master Settlement. In 1998, 46 state attorneys, in fact, all 50, in one way or another, did it, uh, worked out similar agreements. Tobacco companies were threatened with a suit. They've always been threatened. They're beginning to lose their suits. They were uh, offered the freedom from suits no liability. In return, they would pay a total of about $240 billion over about 10 years, I think it was. A lot of money. The funds were to be used for health-related purposes, or half of them, I think, were used for health-related purposes. Like, I looked it up in North Carolina, winemaking at Surrey College. That's one health-related purpose. Another one was broadband access. You know, certainly seemed health-related, don't you think? But the companies were promised freedom from competition. Freedom from competition. The cost was to be paid by, you know, roll, drum roll, smokers. Smokers got to pay the cost. They were required to pay the cost. Well, I won't go through. I just reminded me of a sort of British gangster film, you know, and some kind of nice little business you got there, mate. You know, you wouldn't want to be sued, would you? you know, so for, we'll help you out. And don't worry, somebody else will pay for it. So that was the deal. It's basically, basically extortion. The deal was extortion. Every detail of the MSA was tailored to protect protect the tobacco majors from competition to allow them to extract from their customers the money needed for these massive payouts. Not to mention the contingency fee lawyers who uh, flew about in private jets and so on. Never mind, everybody's happy except smokers. But it's for their own good, right? Right? How can they complain? It's for their own good. All right. So I'm really at the end of this. I'm sorry to have taken so long. Uh, but there is a question. I'm sure you're all asking. If, as I say, smoking is risky, not lethal, is not dangerous to third parties and doesn't cost society, then why does the health establishment hate it so? Why does it hate it so? Okay. And they do hate it. They're against, they're even against e-cigarettes. Even though they seem to be much less risky, they're only nicotine, which is not a carcinogen. Cigarettes, it's the other stuff, nitrosamines, you know, tars and all that with the carcinogens, much less risky than regular cigs, and does help people to give up cigarettes. No question about that. Uh, here's an article by a very respected uh, biologist and science writer, Matt Ridley, e-cigarettes making tobacco up. Why ban them? And there's another article, another one in the 
in the London Times about the same thing. You bureaucrats, I like that word, you bureaucrats and drug companies throttle the electronic cigarette industry and so forth. But they even oppose e-cigarettes just because they have what looks like smoke coming out of them. I think, this is pure speculation, I suspect that the real reason for such hostility to smoking is frustration by the medical profession at the failing war on cancer. The war on cancer has been a pretty disastrous one, like the war in Iraq or something. Here's a headline from a few years ago, by an article by Gina Collato, who's a very good uh, science reporter for the New York Times, writes a lot about health issues. And this says it all, as other death rates fall, cancer scarcely moves. So with the sole except, almost the sole exception of lung cancer, which has been reduced as, um, it has been reduced as smoking has been reduced, but everything else, no, has not been reduced, despite billions spent on cancer. So it's an, in a way a natural reaction of the medical profession to say, well, at least we can stop people smoking. That will, that will help the problem, which it will, it will. But not perhaps a good reason for a public policy to feel that way. All right, so here's the take home. Smoking is risky, but perhaps not as risky as you thought. Smoking, unlike alcohol, is probably not dangerous to non-smokers. Smoking, unlike alcohol and crack, is totally compatible with a productive life. Smokers do not cost society. In fact, they save, save society health, pension, and tax costs. Consequently, the government has no business heavily regulating tobacco or extorting money from smokers. There's no business doing these things. Smoking is a private health problem, and I take my hat to David Bowes, who first pointed out there is a distinction between private health and public health. I mean, there's a kind of imperialism in the health establishment that anything that's bad for people's health, like gun violence, is somehow a health problem. Well, no, not, not true. Smoking is a private health problem, but a public policy disgrace. And that's the end of my talk, so thank you. All right, we'll take some questions now. Do you want to uh, sit there? The microphone is on there, so we'll call on people and we'll bring you a microphone so we can get all of this on tape. Any questions? John? Uh, Peter Brimelow was an editor of uh, Forbes, and he wrote an article about benefits of smoking quite a few years ago. But he had statistics that people, uh, smokers, like had 30% lower incidence of prostate cancer, uh, arthritis, uh, particularly Parkinson's disease, which the story is about the, one of the co-founders of, of uh, Google having... Uh, uh, antecedents with that. Anyway, there, is there are there studies about smokers having less incidence? Oh, and, and uh, prostate things. All those old men's diseases, the smokers seem to have less than the, than the non-smoker. Well, of course, the medical people say they, like have, 30, fewer, they have fewer old people's diseases because they never make it, but that's not well, true. <laughs> but uh, like 30% less, I mean, really substantial. Is there any more, are there new studies on that? Is, is it only the, the, the Parkinson's thing is well established. I mean, the, um, my colleagues at, in, the medical, in the medical center at Duke are sort of embarrassed about the fact that it, it's clearly demonstrable that it, uh, it, it protects to some degree against Parkinsonism. There's no doubt about that one. 
There are some studies that show that nicotine can mitigate Alzheimer's. I don't know quite where they're published. I've heard one of my colleagues talk about them, you know, give a talk about them. So that, certainly that's true. These other things like prostate cancer, things which are very common, it's much harder to know whether to attribute, you know. I mean, smokers, it's all correlational, as I keep saying. I mean, um, smokers differ in their social class, wealth, diets, all sorts of ways from non-smokers. And they try by statistical um, tricks to, to mitigate this, but you can't really get rid of it. So all I know about for sure is the Parkinson's thing, which is very, very, very well demonstrated indeed. And since I have a friend who has Parkinson's, I feel that's, it's a horrible thing to have, and anything which mitigates it should be taken seriously. Let me address this issue of public health versus private health. You sort of ended there by saying it's not necessarily a health issue, there's a freedom issue and so on. But to me, one of the issues is there are public health issues. The things that we did to combat cholera oh, and yeah. malaria, yeah, yeah. there are public health issues that are very difficult for me to protect myself against. Differently, there are health issues that are widespread, like obesity, smoking, AIDS is not as widespread as those, that I would call private health issues because I can protect myself against the problems caused by obesity and smoking. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think the key private-public issue would be, well, there are two key ones. One would be, the most important one would be secondhand smoke. If secondhand smoke really were dangerous and it was not prohibited from people to smoke in public spaces, then indeed that would be a public Health issue would just like be just like an infectious disease. The fact is, the data do not support uh, the idea that uh, um, secondhand smoke is dangerous. So that's right. The other one, which is on the fringes, is to do with health costs, and this is one of the problems with um, socialized medicine of any kind. I mean, it seems to give society the right to tell you how to live your life because we're paying for your health costs. Well, in fact, even there, there isn't a public health uh, uh, justification because, as we've seen, smokers have lower lifetime health costs than, than non-smokers. So those are the two issues, I think, and they make your, they make your point. David Sobelson, please forgive me if I've misunderstood some of the things you said, but I thought you, I heard you say that because... Uh, some people, many people have quit smoking, it's not addictive, and I'm wondering if you really are asserting that, because people have quit heroin too, and most people think heroin... I said not addictive for everyone. I mean, not addictive for everyone, but yeah. even the people who have quit heroin, I think maybe would agree that it's addictive. You can quit an addiction. I think right? a few people do find it very, very difficult to quit, but my guess, my little example in the book is, suppose someone came up to a smoker and they... Uh, there's been, been some new genetic research and they knew for sure whether this person would have cancer in the next five years from smoking or not. They don't, we can't do that now. But we know some people are susceptible and others are not. So it's a, it's a crapshoot. But suppose we'd solved that problem. We came up to the smoker and said, you are going to die of, or you are going to contract uh, a fatal cancer within five years if you continue smoking. Would they continue smoking? My guess is a vanishingly small number of people would continue to smoke under those conditions, under those conditions. So in that sense, it's not addictive. On the other hand, 
if, as is the reality, you say to the person, well, you have a point X, about point two or point three, chance of getting a smoking-related fatal disease, then a lot of people are willing to take the gamble. They're willing to take the chance, and they will not quit. So it's all a question of what the counter-incentives are. I also thought I heard you say that it wouldn't be possible to prove the dangers of secondhand smoke. And I'm wondering why there can't be studies on mice and rats that fill their cages with smoke and see what their life expectancy is. Well, they've result. done it. In fact, they started those studies in the 1900s. I mean, they, they called it fogging, I think. They did these studies because there are all sorts of problems. Mouse, mouse metabolism is not identical to human metabolism. They were given very large doses of smoke, much larger than you know the average even spouse uh, has. So translating this, I mean, no doubt, if you keep people in a room with a lot of smoke for many years, they probably will get sick. But you know, as a friend of mine in the biomedical business says, the solution to pollution is dilution. <laughs> and people can tolerate low doses of things that they can't tolerate high doses of. So the dose problem it makes translation, and I work with animals, makes translation from animals to humans often very, very problematic. How about the sore throats that I get when I'm around cigarette smoke? I'm sorry? How about the sore throats and the coughs I get when I'm around cigarette smoke? Well, maybe for you, it's, it's, and for you then it's certainly an aesthetic issue, if not, if not a health issue. And, you know, they should be places. It shouldn't be the case that you are forced to be exposed to cigarette smoke. I mean, I think everybody agrees to that. Everybody agrees to that. The issue is whether you should go beyond that and try and eliminate smoking everywhere. In terms of the possibility of proving a secondhand smoke connection, that California study of 35,000 non-smokers with smoking spouses could have found that that was a severely dangerous Certainly, situation, yeah. right? Yeah. So in that case, I mean, I don't know, you're the scientist, what constitutes proof in science? Well, it could at least but, but, found, but suppose 15% of those people had lung cancer that would be a pretty strong correlation. Well, I mean, if they'd found a significant difference, and with that number of people, I have to tell you, it's almost, almost impossible not to find a significant difference. I mean, it's really remarkable that they didn't find any difference because the, the two groups were undoubtedly different in many ways other than the proximity to a smoking spouse. So I would say that's pretty good evidence, you know, it's, that there isn't any effect. Yeah. Hold on. Pat Michaels and Cato. We have an adjunct scholar by the name of Ed Calabrese who um, has done a lot of work on uh, hormesis, which is the, uh, the beneficial effect of low doses of things that are bad in high doses, sunlight being a very fine right, example. Right, yeah. of that. A lot of things are poisonous in high doses. Yeah. Okay, now the question is it, it would seem to me that nicotine might actually have that biphasic dose response, does it? Well, uh, it's quite possible. I mean, there's certainly lots of brain workers who report that uh, smoking helps them. And the most dramatic example I always thought was, was Bertrand Russell. If you, if you trawl through the internet, I mean, he was a wonderful writer, philosopher, mathematician, and so on. If you trawl through the internet, you can find an old video, an old BBC video of him. And he was asked, what is your, what is your main vice? 
And he said, oh, smoking, smoking. He said, I smoke all the time when I'm not eating or sleeping. He said, because he was also procreating, but he was kind of old at this time, so probably not so much. But anyway, uh, he obviously found smoking re re really helped him to work, and he was a prodigious worker. And a lot of brain workers report this. Well, the Beryl Brainbridge, I gave an example. There are other examples. So yeah, I think it probably does help people to think. Yeah, smokers to think, yeah. Which is a plus. It's totally ignored by the usual economic analyses and so on. Yeah. Uh, Scott Drankard, Tax Foundation. Um, I'm interested in what your take is on the efforts toward harm reduction, uh, particularly, like you said, right now, uh, e-cigarettes are really taking off in popularity. It seems yes, to be a market-driven yeah. um, approach to minimizing risk. Well, I mean, if he, uh, it seems it's not rocket science. I mean, if these things, people want to smoke these things and they're not harmful, why shouldn't they? I mean, and, and there's no doubt that a lot of people report that it's helped them give up Cigarettes and cigarettes are risky. There's no question about it. It's a dodgy, dodgy business smoking cigarettes. Although my mother smoked them, and uh, she died of a smoking-related disease, but it was '96 anyway when she did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, excuse me. I think it's been established that children that grow up in dirty homes with siblings and pets have lower asthma rates. Is there a similar argument to be made for secondhand smoke? And, and, and I, I mention this particularly because I think that's the only way you can really turn around public thinking or non-thinking. I mean, showing some benefit. Yeah. Yes. That's a good question. But I mean, it's as hard to show a benefit as a disbenefit, you know, when it's all correlational. But yeah, I think um, when I grew up in England in a relatively poor environment, everybody smoked, you know, around me and so on. I don't remember all this stuff about peanut allergies <laughs> people now report. Other people seem to be allergic to everything. And there is, a, there is a hypothesis that it's because they're not exposed to enough challenges, you might say chemical challenges, when they're young. But of course, it's very hard to prove. It's very hard to prove. So I think it's quite likely, but, you know. Thank you. I'm noticing in the article, Life or Lies, Damn Lies in 40,000, it says uh, the war on smoking started with a kernel of truth, uh, but it's grown into a monster of deceit and greed. Um, I recall in some congressional testimony that the tobacco companies uh, might have been uh, similarly accused of, of deceit and greed. Yeah, well, of course, it's completely unknown for uh, for a, a commercial vendor to try and conceal the bad aspects of whatever it is they're selling, right? <laughs> the tobacco companies were not saints. I mean, there's no question about it. They doctored cigarettes to make them more attractive, just as now, you know, people who make bread are putting sugar in it, so people like it. I actually don't like it with the sugar in it, but apparently that's what's been happening. They put sugar in bread, and so so undoubtedly they they try tried to mitigate, minimize. They tried to minimize the risk of their product. I mean, they, that was part of the problem. I mean, they, they really were the bad guys, and that's why they could be taken to the cleaners. Except that they weren't taken to the cleaners. The smokers were taken to the cleaners. That's the real problem. They all signed up to the MSA because they were protected from competition. There's a little competition coming back now, not so much, but I, uh, every now and then I read an article about some little 
company in Florida that's you know, not covered by the MSA. But there are all sorts of clever tricks in the MSA to bar such competition. And, it, and the reason it works is because the tobacco companies had a terrible reputation. I mean, ah, oh, they're all crooks, they're killing us, you know, not telling us, and so on and so on. But I think in general, they probably didn't uh, uh, rose-color their product significantly more than the car manufacturers or the carbohydrate manufacturers or anybody else. But the, the threat seemed so much worse from, from uh, smoking that they, they look really, really bad. I'm sure they did it. I mean, they're not heroes, believe me. At least I don't think they are. Dr. Stodden, I wonder if you had any comments on the issue of premium cigars, um, especially given the recent proposed regulations that were issued by CTP, and then when they're viewed through the lens of the scientific studies that they cite in the proposed regulations, when you look at it, it actually shows that there's the reduction and the harm effects of premium cigars vis-a-vis -vis mass market cigars and all other forms of traditional tobacco. Yeah, well in general cigars are less risky than cigarettes, there's no question about that. People don't smoke as much of them, they're less, uh, less paper that's burned and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, on the other hand you wouldn't want to predict, uh, protect an elite, would you? I mean what a terrible thing that would be. I mean, I think the government should leave them all alone. Cigars, cigarettes, everything, for the reasons that I've, um, that I've given. Instead, this 400,000 deaths. It's interesting that, that the most recent figure on the deaths caused by smoking is not 400,000, it's 480,000. 480,000. Even as smoking has gone down, the public, the, the propaganda about the deaths has gone up. How much sense does that make, right? I mean, it, if 400,000 was an exaggeration, 480,000 is a lot more of an exaggeration. Yeah, so I don't think cigar. I think cigars ought not to be regulated at all. I mean, the, the case for them being left alone is much stronger even than for, for cigarettes, where the cancer risk is, you know, there is a cancer risk for cigarettes, no doubt about it. It's much less for, I mean, Millicent Fenwick smoked, you know, a pipe, uh, so did Bertrand Russell, all these long-lived guys, uh, generally speaking, smoked, smoked uh, pipes or cigars rather than um, cigarettes. All right, I don't see another question right now, so this is uh, one o'clock. Let's call a halt to this. Thank you very much, Dr. Stadden. You're welcome.